Welcome to Bill Bronchick's Real Estate Investing Podcast. Mr. Bronchick is an attorney, best-selling author, and a real estate investor with 25 years' experience. For more information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com. All right, welcome everybody to the uh, coaching call. Today, we're going to talk about what I think are the five best uh, real estate investing strategies for, well, the rest of 2021 and beyond. Uh, beyond how far? Well, time will tell, but I don't think the market is going to change in the next 12 months. And the reason being is, one, real estate markets change slowly. Uh, number two, next year is an election year, 2022. So, the incumbents tend to prop things up to make them look good for the economy. So they're probably not going to raise interest rates. They're probably not going to do anything drastic uh, other than spending a few trillion dollars. You know, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there. What's the difference, right? Um, but other than that, I don't see them passing any kind of major uh, tax um, policy or any other regulatory policy that would that would affect the real estate market um, certainly not within the next year even if they did do something um, in the spring let's say it wouldn't probably go into effect until 2023 so 12 months from now the the, the end of 21 through the end of 2022 I think my opinion is going to be the same uh, with the exception of I think foreclosures are going to start ramping up um they've been on hold for a while federally on federally insured mortgages and then a lot of states and cities and counties have been uh, banning the foreclosure process once that opens up um you know months from now then we're going to see a lot more foreclosures but the five strategies let me go through them um and then i will go through them individually so one pre-foreclosures you know foreclosures are going to be a a big hot spot for their for the next year uh number two short sales number three buying properties subject to and then number four wholesaling properties wholesaling properties which you know really whenever i talk about uh what's a good strategy Wholesaling is one of those things that kind of works in any market. If you're in an up market, you buy high, you sell higher. You're in a down market, you buy low, you sell low. And you're in a medium market, you buy low, sell high. But it's it's pretty much the same thing. Um, so we'll get to each one of these one by one and where the opportunities are. So foreclosures, let's, let me define when I say pre-foreclosure. The foreclosure process is different from state to state, but there's basically some commonalities. Someone goes into default in payments, three payments, four payments, five payments. It depends on who the lender is when they're going to start the foreclosure process. Um, but there's a point where the legal process starts. And there's two types of foreclosure. There's judicial foreclosure that's in mortgage states and there's non-judicial foreclosure which is in trust deed or deed of trust states which is about 60 40 60 uh, percent of the states use deeds of trust 40 uh, percent of the uh, states use mortgages they're both the same essential 
thing. They're security instruments that, that give a lien against a property as collateral for payment on a, on a loan. So in a mortgage state, it starts with the filing of what's called a Liz Pendens, which is a notice of lawsuit, and then a lawsuit is filed. In a non-judicial state that uses trust deeds, it starts with just a usually a notice of default, an NOD. Uh, in Colorado, they use they call it an NED, but it's the same thing. It's a notice of default by the trustee. It says you're in default, and here's what we're going to do, and here's your rights. At some point, whether it's judicial or non-judicial, we're going to end up on the auction steps, auctioning off the property. Some states have redemption rights after the auction, but at some point, um, we're going to get to an auction, and the lender is the first bidder. They bid what they're owed, and if no one else bids, it becomes owned by the bank. It's real estate owned, REO. Um, if someone outbids the lender, if there's equity, then that investor becomes the winner. And then if there's no redemption, they get the deed. If there's redemption, uh, there's some rights of the homeowner to come back and, and, and pay the amount. But it, it doesn't happen very often. So we'll just kind of put that aside for now and just say uh, someone defaults in payments. That's period one. Period two is when the legal action starts. Period three is the auction. Okay. So when I say pre-foreclosure, I mean prior to the filing of the foreclosure proceeding. So sometime between the first default on payments and the beginning of the foreclosure legal process. I call that pre-foreclosure. Now, some people call pre-foreclosure um, between the filing of the legal process and the auction period. Uh, I call that in foreclosure. So just so we're using the same language, from the time they default in payments to the time the legal process start, I'm calling that pre-foreclosure. And then from the time the legal process starts up to the auction, we're going to call that in foreclosure. Okay. So when I say pre-foreclosure, I'm talking about before the filing of the action, before the filing of the legal process. Okay. Now, um, the opportunity is different in pre-foreclosure versus in-foreclosure. Once somebody's in foreclosure, then there's a deadline, and the deadline is the auction. There, there, there's a drop-dead date they have to fix the problem by, otherwise they lose the house. That's good for us as investors because it puts pressure on someone. They know this thing is looming. The, the problem with chasing properties in foreclosure is that everybody knows about it. Once that public notice is filed, that whether it's a Liz pendants or a notice of default, everybody knows about it. It's public. So everybody in their mother is chasing after these, not just investors, bankruptcy attorneys, mortgage brokers, real estate agents, you know, all kinds of people. So you've got a lot of competition in that process, whereas pre-foreclosure, um, you can buy a list of those people who are in default but not yet foreclosure process has been filed, but few people buy that list. Few people buy that. And that list is referred to as the 306090 list. You can Google that and find 100 companies that sell it. Um, they pull it off of credit reports. So someone is 30, 60, or 90 days or more in default on their mortgage payment, that's a list you can buy. And they own a house.
Um, the problem with that um, period is there. there's no sword hanging over their head. There's no definite time yet, no sale date, because no foreclosure has been filed. Um, so that's the bad news. But given the two, I'd rather work pre-foreclosure because, number one, there's less competition. Number two, you get to them earlier. And number three, in terms of a drop-dead date, you can you can talk to the homeowner and create the, um, you know, the, 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 I wouldn't say illusion. Uh, I wouldn't say the illusion, but I create the, the, the fear of this upcoming process that they're going to get thrown out of their house eventually. Okay. So, you don't necessarily need that date. You just have to be able to have a discussion with them that, well, you know, the bank's going to throw you out at some point. You don't know when. Um, we sort of do. I mean, <laughs> when they file the notice, whatever the state law proceeding is, there's a, you know, somewhat definite time period. And for in mortgage states, not really, because it's a court process and we don't know how backed up the courts are. So it could be six months, could be 12 months, could be nine months. We don't know. Uh, in trust deed state, it's, it's, it's defined. It's, you advertise it for X amount of months and then it goes to a sale. So it's pretty well defined. Um, but I, I'd say work the pre foreclosures that that's going to be a better list to work because number one, less competition. Number two, it's earlier in the process the, the challenge with working with people in foreclosure is because we've had this artificial COVID situation where lenders haven't been foreclosing, there could be 12, 13, 15, 20 back payments that you have to make up uh, if that's your strategy. If your strategy is just to pay it off and there's equity, that's fine. But when if you're going to, say, like buy the property subject to the existing mortgage and cure the back payments, that's just a lot of back payments. Um, unless, unless you can work out a forbearance with the lender by getting a power of attorney from the homeowner and a forbearance is where you take the back payments, the arrears and stick it on the back of the loan and then make payments in the next first of the month. Okay. So the forbearance does is it extends the loan period. So if there's 25 years left on the loan and they miss 10 payments, there's 25 years and 10 months left on the loan now. And then you start making payments first of the next month. Okay. Now, forbearances are hard to negotiate. The reason being that besides banks are difficult and they paper you to death, um, in order to qualify for a forbearance, the borrower has to show that he's able to make the payments going forward. And if he's out of work or making less money, he doesn't qualify for a forbearance. Okay, so the only option is either if there's equity, just pay it all off and buy the property cash or make up the 10 or 15 back payments. And if hopefully there's enough equity that that makes sense and take the property subject to the existing loan, okay? So, you know, basically there's three scenarios you're going to come across someone in the foreclosure process. Uh, either they have lots of equity, some equity, or no or negative equity. If they have lots of equity, if it's worth 500 and they owe 300 and they're 
you know, 30,000 in arrears, it's really irrelevant because you're just going to buy a cash, let's say, for 350 pay off the 330 and give the homeowner 20 at closing. And it's just like any other cash deal. The sum equity scenario we'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about subject to deals. That depends on how much equity, how many back payments, what's the interest rate on the loan, and so forth. And then there's no or negative equity. In most cases, the only solution there, if they're in foreclosure or they're pre-foreclosure, um, is going to be a short sale. And now you can do short sales in foreclosure or pre-foreclosure. It really doesn't matter because the bank is taking X dollars in lieu of the full amount. So if they're three payments behind or 10 payments behind, it's really kind of irrelevant. Uh, yeah, I mean, it affects the total owed and how much interest has accrued. But the bottom line is, if the property's worth five and they owe six, um, and you want to pay four, you're going to have to convince that lender to drop what's owed from 600 down to 400 uh, and take a short, a short pay, we call that, or a short sale. And then you just buy the property cash for 400 So let's get into that, which is number two, short sales. So we're going to look for properties that are upside down or break even in equity. And in that case, you can work pre-foreclosure or, or in foreclosure. Um, again, I, I, I think pre-foreclosure is less competition. So I would focus on that first. If they're not in default, meaning they haven't stopped making payments, then you're probably not going to have any chance of getting a short sale. The, the lender is not going to work a discount if the homeowner's current on his payments. That might be a subject to scenario, which we'll talk about in a bit. So we sign a contract with the seller to buy it at the price we want to pay for it, regardless of what is owed. And then the contract is contingent upon the lender approving that number in lieu of the full amount. So and then we get to get the contract, we get some other paperwork, we negotiate with the lender and get them to take a short. Once it's approved, they'll, they'll give you a letter saying we've approved the short in the amount of X dollars. Here are the conditions and here's when you have to close by. And then at that point, you would uh, buy the property, whether cash or a hard money loan, or you can if you have time, get a, uh, a regular loan and, and, and rent it out or, or fix and flip it or, or whatever. <clears throat> so that would be a, a short sale scenario. And I think we're going to see a lot of these right now, especially lenders are really you know, open to short sales because they can't foreclose. Um, so if you're the lender now and you've got all these defaults, and no one's paying and you can't foreclose, of course they want to do a short sale. The challenge is going to be, of course, finding a homeowner who wants to do it because the homeowner's going, I'm on a free ride. I'm living here for nothing, indefinitely. So uh, not as much motivation on their part, but certainly a possibility. The third scenario would be buying subject to, and that could be in foreclosure, 
could be pre-foreclosure, more likely pre-foreclosure, um, because there's less payments owed. I should say, in proper English, fewer payments owed. We're looking for properties that don't have a lot of equity, but have a really low interest rate. And what's a really low interest rate? I would say anything under four at this in this market is really low. Um, we're going to, at closing, simultaneously, all at once, make up the arrears, the back payments to the lender, um, assuming it's in behind in payments, uh, give the seller maybe some walking money if there's room in the deal, and then the seller deeds the property over to you, so you're the owner, and you start making payments from there on every month instead of the seller making the payments, and then you can... Uh, Fix it up and rent it. If there's equity, fix it up and flip it. Or my favorite scenario would be to f fix it up slightly and then sell it on a wraparound, on a contract for deed or land contract or or a wraparound mortgage or depending on what state you're in, and then collect cash flow on that. Now, buying subject to doesn't have to be in default, although that's your most likely candidate. They could be current on the loan and do a subject to. Uh, the only challenge you're going to come against is someone who, who hasn't defaulted is probably conscious of their credit. If they give the property to you and you don't make the payments, that's going to affect their credit and they're going to be leery of that. But nonetheless, if, if someone says, I, I can't make another payment, I just can't do it anymore, I've moved out, and um, if I can't sell the property well, then I'm just going to let it go back to the bank. And that could be in foreclosure, pre-foreclosure, or current, but that's the type of person whose mentality we're looking for. If you hear those magic words like, well, I'm just going to let the bank take it. I, I don't want it. I'm just going to walk. That's a subject to all the way. Now, it's not that common when you talk to a seller. They're going to say those magic words. But if you ask the right questions, you might get at um that mentality or that kind of pain in them that they're in that they're willing to do it if they're behind in payments it's much easier because what are they going to say if they're four payments behind what are they going to say to you well if i deed it to you mr investor and if you don't pay um that's going to affect me well they're they're not paying <laughs> so it's not like you know it's going to be any worse um you're going to get less objection to that issue all right next We've got um, small apartments, small apartments, which I think I might have missed in my, did I talk about that in my five? Yeah, I must have missed that, number four. Uh, buying buying uh, small apartment builders. When I say small, I mean uh, five to 25 units. And the reason being is that Fanny Freddie, FHA, finance, residential, one, two, three, and four families. So single, duplex, triplex, fourplex. As soon as you get to five units, all that financing is not available. So you get into commercial financing. The challenge is with five units is it's too small of a loan for most lenders to want to deal with. So there's fewer lenders willing to lend on small units uh, once you get up into 50, 100, 200 units, you have multi-million dollar loans, there's a lot of competition from lenders. But for, uh, let's say you're in a market where um, 
units are selling for a buck, a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand a unit. Five units is only seven hundred fifty thousand. <clears throat> with 20, 30% down, that's not a big enough loan that most lenders want to deal with. So, sellers know this, their brokers know this, and they're usually more open to creative or seller financing. The idea is you find an apartment building in need of repairs with below market rents or, or both. If you look for apartments that are perfect, have no deferred maintenance, they're completely occupied at market rent, you're not going to find a deal. That you're going to pay top dollar for. And that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for something that is distressed. It needs repair. Maybe it's it's got some occupancy problems. It's got some drug or crime problems. It, the market rents are way above what they're charging. Um, so we're, we're going to buy something like that cheap. Fix it up, raise the rents to market, get rid of the bad tenants, and then you can, and this is going to take a few years, by the way. Uh, I love when these realtors um, on these commercial small properties say, oh, um, the current rents are, are 1200 but next year uh, you could raise it to market, which is 1500 <laughs> That's not realistic. You can't raise rents from 12 to 1500 in one shot. That's a 25, more than that. Wait a minute. Four, three, yeah, 25% um, increase. That, that's a substantial one. You're going to lose a lot of tenants. You got to do it slowly. So um, you want to fix it up, clean up the, clean out the, the bad tenants, uh, maybe paint, uh, upgrade units, add amenities, whatever, to get everything up to the point where it's stabilized. Stabilized means uh, we've got 80 to 90% occupancy, and this market should be closer to 100, especially if it's only five or 10 units. Um, and then you can refinance it based on its new value, which is much higher because the rents are higher. And then you could keep it or just flip it at that point. So you're buying it for, let's say, a million put 200,000 into it, stabilize it, sell it for a million six, million eight. That's the basic strategy there for that one. Um, in terms of financing, if you're going to buy a property that is way underperforming, meaning you know, 60, 50% occupancy, lots of deferred maintenance, you're not gonna be able to get a, a, um, a, a 15, 20, 25, 30 year fixed rate loan. Uh, most lenders won't lend on that. You're going to have to get temporary financing, almost like a hard money loan. Uh, it's called um, temp loans or mezzanine or interim financing. Do your magic and then refinance it or sell it. Or you could put together a syndication of investors and pay cash. Or one of my favorite strategies, which is a master lease option, where you find a property with upside potential, Instead of buying it, which is going to be minimum 20, maybe 30% down, you can offer a lease of the whole building, a master lease, and then you sublet to the tenants, collecting the spread on the difference between what you're collecting and what you're paying. Give the seller, instead of you know 20, 30% down, you maybe give them 5 or 10% down as option money reposition the property, take control, 
And then you can exercise your option and sell the property or exercise your option and buy it and put a new loan on it and keep it. I like that strategy much better because if you have to put 20 or 30% down and then put another 10 or 20% into um, repairs and improvements, that's a lot of cash out of pocket. Whereas if you can put maybe 10% down or 5% down and then use the cash that you saved to reposition the property, you're going to get a much better return on your money. And finally, wholesaling. Buy low, sell low. Works in any market. The only difference is what you buy it for and what you sell it for. So in hot markets, it's different than bad markets or stable markets. Now, one way and the more common way that people are taught to wholesale is you find a decent fix and flip and you put it under contract at a low price and then you assign that purchase contract to another investor who's going to fix it and resell it to an owner occupant now the challenge with that is there's not a lot of properties that fit the bill in this market because the market is low in inventory and things are selling quickly even with marginal numbers so you're going to have to, if you're going to do a fix and flip, it's got to be a major fix and flip, a major renovation, a scrape, uh, a pop top, a house that's falling off the foundation and needs a hundred grand worth of work to fix it. And that's the stuff that's going to weed out your competition. Something that's just carpet paint and appliances the numbers are just not going to work because there's not enough properties to go around and people are overbidding those. I like better wholesaling rental properties. Find a property that'll work as a fix and rent and then wholesale that to a landlord. You could look at the same property and do two analysis. You could look at a property and say, well, if I'm going to fix and flip this, it would need 50 grand in work. But if I were going to fix and rent it, maybe it only needs 10 or 15. And therefore, I could pay more money for this property and rent it for cash flow or wholesale it to someone who will cash flow it and beat out my competition who's trying to bid low to fix and flip it. And there are many, many, many more landlords to flip to than there are uh, rehabbers. So the basic strategy is simple. You get the property under purchase contract. You assign that contract to another investor for a fee and move on to the next deal. Pretty simple. Some things that I have four categories of investment strategies that, that won't work very well in today's market. Won't work very well. Okay. So number one would be as I discussed earlier, a light fix and flip. So if you're looking for a, you know, carpet paint appliances, twenty to twenty-five thousand dollar renovation, and then try to make a profit, um, whether you're wholesaling or doing it yourself, it, it, there's just no numbers there. The numbers don't work in this market. Uh, people are paying way too much and asking way too much for that. Lots of competition from other investors who went to a seminar because that's an easy project that most people can handle. Um, paying full price for a rental and renting it out 
putting 20% down and going to get a bank loan, you're going to find that your cash flow is near zero, or if not negative, depending on the price of the house. Um, paying full price for an apartment completely occupied, we talked about that earlier. If you're going to go into apartments, you got to find something distressed. And the last category is pretty much anything on the MLS. Um, inventory is really way down in, in most major markets at anywhere between 10 and 25% um, of normal inventory. It's creeping slightly, but it's still way, way, way low. So the challenge isn't that there's so many investors competing with you. The challenge is supply. It's not demand, it's supply. There just aren't enough properties to go around that are listed on the MLS. That's not to say there aren't deals out there. There's plenty of people who would be willing to sell their house under the right circumstances. They're just not listing it with a realtor. So we got to shake the trees and do marketing and uh, find those people. Okay. All righty. So that's, that's the five and the, the four that aren't going to work so well in today's market information and free articles and videos, visit his website at www.legalwiz.com.